Chris, welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, so look, we exist here purely to help people understand the truth of the journey of a founder, okay? And what it's like from all the different lenses. As the show sounds, back yourself. I believe truly that if you have a passion and you have an idea, and if it's a good idea and you validated it, you should back yourself and go and go and do that. Okay. And it's it couldn't be a better time in history to start a company, I believe, certainly a tech company, and certainly in London. Um, and so what we did was this show was born out of my own experience of not being able to get access to, I mean, genuinely honest information. You know, there's a lot of stuff you can go out there, you type into Google, how do I make a good pitch deck? And there's some core stuff in there, but it varies. Like what actually is going to get me noticed? I didn't know the answer to that. What actually is, an, is a VC looking for? Or what's it like being invested in from a founder's perspective? What's it like going through that journey? And so we've had some really great people come on the show, uh, some people you know very well. And what they all do is they come on in, they've shared some great wisdom and they've told, helped educate our audience into following that dream. Okay. Now you're an incredibly successful investor. I know that, but there's probably a lot more to that story than just, I just rocked up and now I'm a successful investor. So look, imagine we're on a first date. Tell me about yourself and let's go from there. Cool. Um, so thanks for having me on firstly. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to take it way back to kind of growing up and like the kind of life I, I had then. So yeah, do it. So, um, you know, my folks are absolutely amazing. They sent me to a lovely school out in Hertfordshire and it was very traditional. Okay. So the careers advice I had when I was about 17 was, um, all right, Chris, sorry, actually Christopher at the school. Uh, and they were like, um, so, you know, you're academically, you're doing pretty well, you know, you're going to get A's and B's and whatever else. Um, so we recommend that you're either a lawyer, a doctor or an accountant. I was like, okay, so That's I don't want to be need, a doctor. Need a label. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to be a doctor because I don't like blood. Uh, I don't want to be an accountant because I'm comfortable with numbers, but I don't love them. Yeah. So I kind of was forced, well, not forced, but I was just like strongly encouraged down this sort of professional route, go and be a lawyer. Do you think, um, that, do you think that's like, I mean, like that's, so I'm, I'm kind of interrupting you already, but I think that's still the same now. I guess when when was that? I mean, obviously you're 21 now. So that was so. like 1999 <laughs> when I was at school getting that advice. But it's kind of no different now, isn't it? People are still categorizing that, you know, when you're, when you're, and also like when you're 17, if someone said to you, what career do you want? Like I wanted to be in a boy band. Still right. do, still do. It could still happen if you're out there, scouts. Um, but like you, but at the same time, you could have that categorization. And that's not the fault of your parents. It's just the fault of society being like, well, if you don't have that labeled as a job, and there's a thing, isn't there, when you go to people and you say like, um, what's your job? And if you say to someone, um, I'm an accountant, everyone's like, oh, yeah, good, yeah, 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 yeah. And you say, I'm a founder. They're like, what the fuck? You're unemployed. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I get it. I get it. Yeah. So you 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 didn't have those categories. Yeah. And on that point, my, my mum was so happy for like the, the 10 years I was a lawyer because she could explain what I did. And everyone <laughs> not, like nodded knowingly, as you say, at like when she went out for lunches yeah. and met her friends. But, yeah, I know that. But I, yeah. I think... You know, looking back, what's interesting, I didn't give that much thought to what I was going to do for a career. I kind of just took that advice and mm. you kind of then just get on this this treadmill. So, you know, you do your A-levels, you get your results, you get into a university. Um, you know, law firms are really good at reaching out to you, kind of end of your sort of first year of university going, oh, come and spend the summer with us, do a vacation scheme. They reach out to you? Yeah, so they'll be on campus um, holding events like pretty much, you know, two or three a week, um, selling you the big dream and going... You know, we're in the case of the firm I ended up with, we're a billion dollar law firm. Look at all the amazing things you can do. 
And so, well, mate, I tell you what, that that sounds super attractive already. Like as a as a, like a nineteen year old. I mean, like when I, I mean, I did theology. I tell you, no one comes and pitches to you to come and work with them. <laughs> it, it does, you know, and and they also so basically they come to you and say, come and spend the summer with us at the end of your first year, and then by the beginning of your second year, you have got a contract to go and work with them after law school starting salary of whatever it was like 40 45,000 pounds a year Pfft, and you just feel like job. yeah you're king you just feel like it's great it's amazing yeah. um Jeez. and then and then you go to law school and I think I started to realize at law school I was in the wrong place because kind of the people I was around were very conservative like one-dimensional um really quite a bit hard to describe but like I just felt like they were a little bit boring frankly yeah. Um, so I thought maybe I'm kind of going in the wrong direction here. But by that point, it's a little bit too late. You know, what, what, what are you going to do? So kept going, um, ended up at this law firm. So I was at a firm called Wild. It's like a New York headquartered law firm in London. In hindsight, probably one of the best places I could have been because it was small and a little bit entrepreneurial. But I remember about two weeks into it, talking to some of the other trainees going, this is shit. Yeah. Like I'm spending all my time photocopying, proofreading documents. There's no creativity. And then you look at the people senior to you and go, okay, they're earning a lot of money, but that's the only thing. So the old, the people like the partners who are they're overweight, they're divorced once or two times, they're just miserable. They've kind of lost that kind of excitement, right, about just being mm. alive. So mm. I knew pretty early on that it wasn't what I wanted to do in the long term. Um, and you, then- when you're at that point, like loads of people listening to this will be able to relate to that. And it doesn't necessarily have to happen when you're 21. It can happen at any stage where Alex Dunstan talks about it a lot. Um, and he talks about how he is, he was at MC Saatchi and he was smashing it. And he's just like, I just don't belong here. It's not my thing. I was the same. Like I worked in big corporates for a long time and I was, you, you have, a, everyone looks at you from the outside and they're like, what are you talking about? You don't like this. You've got, you're earning great money. You're in a massive company. I get what you do. How on earth could you possibly feel this isn't the dream? What's going on in your mind? Like what, what was it that, other than you say people are one-dimensional, they probably thought you were one-dimensional. It's always the way, isn't it? Anyone who's not the same as people always see it that way. You know, it's that you're just, they're just different. But how did you, what was it about, what was it that the grass was greener? What was it that made something else attractive? So I think I, there's a couple of things, right? So I, I think the realization was when I was going into the office, I realized that I was putting on a persona and it was almost like I, I used to walk to the office. I lived in London and I, as I approached it was like suddenly I sharpened up my tie and I just, I was bringing this completely different person to work, which felt really strange. And like nowadays we talk a lot about bringing your authentic self and just being yourself and you're going to be happier and you'll do better work. Law firms are the opposite. You have to be a certain way, right? You have to be deferential to your clients. You have to be incredibly responsive, never let them see you worry about stuff. And so it was almost like, it was like I was being a fake version of myself, I guess. Chris, I fucking love that. What a great, what a great insight. I love that that description you have of like tying up the ties you go in because like that that's exactly what happens isn't it you know you you just you're like okay right when i'm in the office i need to become chris the lawyer yep okay i have to put on that persona and it's like but that's that's not you what how exhausting must it be to put on that front for like how long were you a lawyer 10 years 10 fucking years <laughs> like to put 10 years on or percent pretending to be someone you're not the clothes is just one thing but it's not the clothes it's the fact that you you were scruffy in real in your mind but like when you get into the office you're like i have to be smart and presentable but that's i always think that because the cognitive load that 
I think that happens there when you're putting on that front all the time. Like you're not going to give the best output either. You know, you're like, you're just, you're not being yourself. And that when you are yourself, when you find your passion, that's when you shine. Exactly. And, and I think the other thing is, so, I mean, I was relatively good at it. Like I wasn't a star. In no, the firm, you're being modest. But, but, but it was just, I didn't get any satisfaction from the work I was doing. What makes a good lawyer, by the way? How do you measure success? Uh, getting transactions done, happy clients. It's a, it's a service business. So right. we'll talk about VC obviously later. That's also a service business, but yeah, it's basically making your clients happy, uh, getting their deals done. Okay. I mean, like my experience of law is entirely from suits. And so I just imagine <laughs> the more you walk around and the quicker you walk and the more you shout, the better lawyer you are. That's right, isn't it? Uh, that's what. Oh you- my goodness! <laughs> what happened there? That's what you do to try and avoid getting work, by the way. You walk down the corridor really quickly holding loads of papers, go to your office and shut the door. Yeah. And then you hope the other partner, like, partners aren't going to walk down and give you a new deal to do. So I love that. I love that. Well, There's that thing. And I, would the, I would say to people, like, the best corporate advice you can ever give anyone. What is happening to these lights? Don't worry. We'll, um, we'll pretend they didn't happen. The, um, the, the best corporate advice you can ever give anyone is walk quickly because people think you're doing something important. Yeah, that's fine. Totally, point. 100%. <laughs> so I, I did that all the time. But So you had like, 10, 10 years and then you fit, there must have been a point when you're a bit like this game ain't right for me anymore so i i think there's a few things that happened so so one was i actually had a telecoms business when i was at university now it was okay let's chill out here that's a pretty big omission to say i just i just had a telecoms business at university telecoms isn't isn't a small entry level job what what was this side hustle that happened to me talk to me <laughs> so so I think having having grown up in this in this kind of really nice sort of idyllic home county setting, moved to London for university, and I was immediately blown away by the number of people from different countries, and it was like this crazy place. It was so so sort of exciting. And about two or three weeks uh, into being a fresher, I was on the tube. I saw an advert for this new way of making international calls, and it was really cool because you could make international calls with like no contract, and it was basically free. It's like if I wanted to call the US or wherever in the world, it was pretty much free. So I had no idea how this company was doing it, but it sounded amazing. And I thought, maybe I can sell that to students. So I got in touch with the the company, went to their headquarters, somewhere in North London, I forget where. And I pitched to them. I didn't know I was pitching, but I basically went in and said, look, this is a really cool idea. Uh, I've got access to like 10,000 students in London. Which is kind of a lie. I didn't. I thought I could probably figure out how to do it later on. Um, and they gave me my own access numbers for this service and they agreed to pay me a commission on all the calls that came through it. What? Yeah, so I, I was quite excited by this. Uh, went back to my hall, started planning a little bit. Uh, it went pretty slowly to start with. So the first month I made two pounds and then... Two pounds? Yeah, two pounds. Okay, I think it was, then I think it was like six and then I think it went up to nine. But you kept going when but, you only made two pounds and you yeah. stuck at it. Because, yeah, I did. And the other thing I did was realize that that I didn't have the skills to build this company myself. So I found, it was just through serendipity, really, but I I found a co-founder who was also at UCL with me in the same year, who was a web developer. And he'd seen one of my really appalling flyers somewhere around the campus and got in touch and said, I think I can help you. So we met for coffee and he said, look, I'm a web designer. I can design you an amazing website. I can design all your marketing materials uh, and I'm not going to charge you for it. Maybe we could do some kind of deal on, on equity and maybe I can take some shares. 
Okay, you nice. would be like, equity in what? Yeah, that, that's the thing. Yeah, there was no company or anything. But like, this guy knows a lot more about business than I do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But the key thing, right, is just say yes. Okay? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I, yeah, you'll figure said, it out. yeah, that sounds fine. We'll figure it out. Yeah, nice. Um, and he, so he designed this new website. He designed all these flyers. And he was the kind of guy, he just got stuck in. So he came with me, like when we used to do our, I call them raids, right? We used to go to the halls of residence and obviously you're not allowed to fly in there. So we used to somehow find a way in and you have to quickly like put all the flyers underneath all the doors and leg it out. So just to just say so you no, know, that your degree will probably be rescinded now because yeah. you've got the walls there listening. Yeah. I wait for the police outside. Yeah. Um, so we did that together. I obviously realized he was a good guy, really committed to what we were doing and, and loved it. But then the business went from like next month is like 40 quid and then 150 or whatever. It, that's, whatever. I mean, that's still more profit than most VC-backed startups. So, <laughs> so like, you know, you're actually, you're killing it. Yeah, yeah it was just, I, the thing it taught me though, right, is just the value of a co-founder and, yeah. and someone who brings like complementary skills to you. Because yeah. I, I kind of had the idea and I, I kind of understood how to build the relationship with the, with the supplier. But I can't design stuff and I can't market stuff myself. You know, I need other people to help. So... We did, we had a load of fun doing that. Spent I basically spent most of my university time doing that business. I had one of the first generation Blackberries. I used to sit at the back of the lecture theatre doing customer service emails, and I vividly remember one uh, one lecture. There was a really scary lecturer, uh, and he would like pick on you and shout at people. And I had my head down. I was like dealing with some customer service issue, and suddenly he shouted, "You pay attention!" And I was like. Oh no, it's me. I've been caught. Oh no, buzz. So I decided keep my head down and just see what happens. And luckily it was someone else somewhere oh, else in the lecture theater. There you oh, go. Fine. I've got away with and it. You're like, I am paying attention to my customers. <laughs> to my customers, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of learned a lot of I learned about customer services. I, I learned a little bit about building a business. Um we ended up operating from I, ironically the most valuable thing you did at university. For sure. Yeah. yeah. And and interestingly, I don't think it would have happened if I hadn't gone to university in London. So I'm just a huge advocate. I think the city's amazing. Uh, if I'd been at Oxford or Cambridge, where possibly my parents would have encouraged me to go, I don't think I'd have got that exposure and been able to live a great life of being a student for 20% of the time and actually running a business for 80% of the time. Um, so that was, that was brilliant. Um, and then I also learned a lot of stuff that you shouldn't do in a company. So I built it as a hobby business not knowing that you could what does that mean? do something else. So I made mistakes. Like, for example, when I first set it up, I took these access numbers from another company as an agent effectively and got paid commission. So when we started building the business up and we had, we had like two or three million minutes a month going through these numbers, that started to become quite valuable. So in revenue terms, it was probably sort of two, three, four thousand a month. Which in student terms is a fuck ton of money. I was honestly, I, I felt the wealthiest I've pretty much ever felt in that period at university because yeah, my parents were giving me a nice allowance, student yeah. loan, plus the income from the telecoms business. Literally walk in the student union, right guys, snakey bees are on me. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. Nice. Um, but I set it up in that way, just not thinking about the future. And then when we had all this traffic going through, our telecoms all that traffic, we had the traffic going through. We thought, actually, if we could move this traffic to our own hardware, our own access numbers and create our own sort of telecom relationships to do the international call bit, we can make a lot more money. Mm. But we couldn't move the traffic. We couldn't move the customers because we didn't own the numbers. So it's like one of those foundational things when you're building a company. If you have a, a single point of failure or you've set it up in such a way that you don't actually own the underlying IP or assets, uh, it can create a problem if your ambition is to build like a scalable company, right? You want to get investment. That hasn't changed. 
Yeah. Same. That's an interesting lesson. And you learn it early on. So you had this side hustle. Yeah. Yeah. Which turned out to be pretty hot. And so you're, and you're there and you kept it going. So I kept it going until 2005. So basically when I finished law school, I realized that like taking a training contract at a law firm was going to be pretty full on. Mm. So my business partner took it over basically. And I said to him, just, just take it over. Uh, gave him some more of the shares and he's kind of, I mean, it actually still runs to this day. I mean, it's really small now. Uh, because things like WhatsApp and Viber and everything. It's quite a good, I mean, but still, I mean, like, to have a business running 14 years later in telco, that's yeah. pretty good. Yeah, and still a relationship. Like the, the guy, my co-founder, uh, he's just a brilliant guy. So um, yeah, yeah that's been, it's been amazing. And it, and it probably, it probably opened doors because again, when I was going for things like interviews at law firms and you've got thousands of applicants and there was, what's different about this person mm. uh, actually being able to talk about that just changed the direction yeah, no, of I like the that. conversation I like that. I like that. Um, and it's something actually I look at a lot today and I'm jumping around a bit here but you know when people are looking to get into VC we hired for an associate and had a thousand applications and a thousand people a thousand people found Playfair yeah and applied to be an associate at VC a thousand yeah and that's not dissimilar I saw there was a role for Felix Capital on LinkedIn, you know how they pop up? That had like 1,300 applications. It's not unusual. People, it's a really Felix Capital, have they literally called themselves because they want to be lucky? Is that what they've done there? They've gone down the Greek route and they've been like... After the cat, maybe. Well, it's after, yeah, nice. <laughs> okay, good. All right, nice, good name. Uh, um, so, but what was interesting about that is that we had so many people applying. You had really stellar CVs, as in top two university. Then they went to Goldman or JP or McKinsey, and now they wanted to get into VC but they had nothing else. And the guy we ultimately hired, a guy called Henrik, I mean, he's, he's brilliant, but he had done crowdfunding. So he had a portfolio of 40 companies he built up while he was at university. Uh, so instead of going out for beers, he'd be basically been investing and in, in researching companies. He also started um, a couple of businesses at university, again, kind of small scale hobby type stuff. And so he just stood out a million miles for us. And the first interview, instead of being you know, tell us what you've done most recently at JP Morgan. We're like, oh, what's the most popular company in your portfolio? And then he told us Monzo. We're like, oh, interesting. And then actually it's funny because Playfair, we passed on Monzo. I should add, not me, oh, the Playfair team mate. in the past. Everyone does it, right? Always happens. Oh, uh, but that's he, a stinger. But he invested in Monzo. And so it was just this thing. So, so Playfair hasn't anymore? <laughs> so I guess, yeah, that's true, actually. I suppose we have. Yeah, right? we didn't pass. It's just, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, have some, we have some interest through our associate, but... But no, I, I just think it's interesting how he, he really stood out. And I think the telecoms business did the same for me, actually. It just helped me at each stage, each interview process. It was just something interesting. There's to some really about. good advice there. Like I, yeah, I think it's, we um, we recently did a shout out and we're hiring a um, community champion for our users. Um, because we've got, because we're a gaming company. Yeah. Like, oh, I mean, dear God, like it's, it's sexy, right? Yeah. You get loads of stuff. And I just, one of them sent through a video. Didn't send through a CV. One of them sent me a video. Yep. Um, and they were still like, they're like playing a game. And then they turn away from the game like, oh, hi. <laughs> yeah. I know what you're looking for. And I'm like, dude, come in. I was so sold. But like, it makes them stand out. We have Max Kelly on the show. Um, SVP of, what time this goes out, he won't be anymore because he's leaving. But the um, SVP of uh, Techstars. And I said, what What do you do? How do you get through? You know, they get, oh, I mean, they get like 5,000 applications for textiles. It's nuts. I said, what makes people stand out? And they're like, well, something different. Do you know what I mean? Like everyone's got a great idea. Everyone's a cool founder. 
And there's always, you've always done the market research. Those are just givens. But what are you going to do that's going to make you give yourself something else? Think about it. Think outside the box. And I love that advice about getting jobs in VC. Um, a lot of people download that, I expect, when we cut it. Um, so, right, you've done that. You've been through that journey. You've decided to stop being a lawyer. Yeah. What do you do? What is it you're going to do? Because you're, you're kind of a founder, right? You've done that. You've been a founder. Did you want to go and start your own business? Is that where the jam was? Or where did you want, what did you want to do? So I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do next. I just knew that law wasn't for me. So I had the kind of initial. I just started. This is probably not for me long term. And were you? And being like being honest with yeah. yourself, were you on the partner route? Were you going to get partner? Yeah, I, I think. I think when I ultimately quit, people thought I was insane. Mo well, actually, it was split. Most people thought I was insane. Why would you throw this away now when you're probably a year or two away from partnership? Yeah. And then there was a a, a big minority who came up to me and said congratulations for getting out well done like how did you do it and i kind of interested in doing the same mm -hmm. um but it, but it was two things it was the initial this probably isn't for me then the financial crisis happened so i qualified in 2007 most people including me would have probably done another two or three years just to kind of get the learning curve learn as much as you can from doing these kind of big m a transactions and then leave. is that what you specialize in yeah i was doing m a like mainly for kind of private equity funds sure. and dc funds so um I so you're kind of touching the game anyway. It has been useful. Yeah, I didn't sure. need to do 10 years of it, but, yeah, it, was, yeah, sure. but it was useful. Sure, yeah. But then, then the financial crisis happened in 2008. So I was only 18 months qualified. And suddenly anything I wanted to jump out and do, you know, whether it was, I guess founder would have been slightly different, but any kind of investment type of role, whether it was like PE, hedge fund, VC, I hadn't really thought about it yet at that point. Yeah. But those routes were just closed. Because obviously you've got tens of thousands of people who've been laid off from the banks who are obviously really qualified people. So I pretty much just put my head down, stayed at the firm. What was quite interesting is I ended up doing a bunch of restructuring work, which it's still lawyering, it's still papering stuff, but was a little bit more interesting because you're dealing with companies in distress and how you how do you deal with the banks and the different investors and kind of yeah. hopefully rescue it so they can kind of live another day. So did that for a while. Any sexy stories there? Any big, big names? Um, Obviously, well, I was working on Lehman, so I did a little bit of work on the Lehman. So would we call that a saviour? Uh, yeah, well, not exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but for some creditors, maybe. Maybe, yeah. Um, yeah, to be honest, most of them were workouts rather than turnaround. Yeah, but, sure. Um, but yeah, and then, it, and then I would, I moved law firms. So I sense checked. I thought, I don't know why I bothered, actually. I knew. But I, well, let's move law firms and check. It's not actually like being a lawyer. Maybe it's the firm that's holding me back and maybe that's yeah, the problem. Okay. So I moved firms um, to, to a firm called Oldswang that was more kind of VC orientated. So I was starting to think early stage startups is much more interesting. And I'd, I'd started angel investing back in 2008. So that kind of came into it a little bit as well. Um, and the thing that happened at Oldswang I had one of my angel investments was ready to IPO. And I thought, okay, great. I can pitch for that work. So not only am I going to get a return as an angel, but I can do the legal work on the deal. This is perfect. Yeah. And we went to pitch for the work. We ended up being the most expensive firm by miles, but we still managed to get it, luckily. Win. And then we got back to the office and I felt that kind of like excitement. This is a, I've won my first piece of work as a lawyer. This is great. And then about two hours later, I realized now I've got to do all the work <laughs> and it's really dull. Yeah. And so that was one realization. I thought, actually, this, this is no fun. Like if I win all this business, I'm going to have to do it. And I just really don't enjoy it. Yeah. And the other thing that happened was just from a business point of view, we'd quoted 120 grand to do an IPO. 
Now that's quite low, although it sounds like quite a lot. Um, we actually had on the clock, like we'd recorded half a million pounds worth of fees. So the firm effectively lost money on doing that. You, you must have been so popular, Chris. This is the thing. <laughs> I'd done everything in my mind. I'd done everything right. Yeah, I bring in the deal. We do the deal. Yeah. We lose money. So yeah. it, it just made me realize that as much as I personally don't get satisfaction from being a lawyer and this whole, I, said, I don't feel authentic. I don't feel like I'm myself. I'm working crazy hours. Like the final straw was, and when I win business, you can't even make any money out of it. No, you Jesus, know, it was yeah. just, it was too much. So they kind of, uh, they made an interesting move at the firm because they stuck me in a room uh, with this guy, a guy called um, Gordon, um, who was also looking to leave law. And so we basically spent most of the day, shut the door and we just schemed basically what, what on earth are we going to do next? Um, he now is the founder of Blacklock. Uh, it's a ribs, uh, also it's a chops restaurant. Uh, and he's got three branches now. So he's been amazingly successful as a restaurateur. It's a pretty massive change from being a lawyer. Yeah. But I think we encourage each other to just go out yeah. there and look and see what's available. And um, I found this this guy who was hiring for a family office in the Isle of Man. And he was looking specifically for lawyers to come and be investment managers. And that doesn't happen very often in the UK. It happens more in the US. So in the US, lawyers, attorneys, I think are generally a bit more respected. They're considered a slightly more rounded business people. In the UK, lawyers don't really tend to get those opportunities. So I applied. Um, I'd only been at this firm two months, by the way. So obviously the move had not worked out well. Yeah, geez. So I applied and thought, okay, well, we'll just see what happens. So I met the uh, I met the founder of this family office, a guy called a guy called Dan Craddock. He'd been like a really successful serial entrepreneur. He was very young as well. And met him in London. He was hiring for two roles, one in London, one in the Isle of Man. And I thought, well, I apply for the London one. Had a couple of conversations with him and he said, I'd like to invite you to a final stage interview, but by the way, the job's going to be in the Isle of Man. And I thought, okay. Isle of Man is lovely, but I mean, it's he, not London. It, you know, and I was what, 30, 31 at the time. And I thought, you know, actually, you know what? Everyone's going to think I'm crazy quitting law. So why <laughs> don't I move to a rock in the middle of the Irish Sea uh, along with the motorbikes and the cats without tails and mm. everything else. And I thought, yeah, screw it, let's do it. Yeah. And um, I remember going for the final round interview and I got a, got a flight down from Gatwick. I was so paranoid when I was when I was flying to this because I'd basically pulled a sickie at work, probably the only time I've ever done it because it's the only way I could do it. And I thought, there's going to be someone from my firm coming through. Of course the there so is. I was li- I was in the loo, yeah, hiding in the were. loo and like I was keeping my head down. Luckily it was fine. And I, you just um, weren't naughty enough as a kid, Chris. Yeah, that's your problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was encouraged to be a lawyer, right? I encouraged yeah, to, to do everything right. It's kind of how, it's true, how it yeah. all worked out. So for me, this was being incredibly rebellious. So um, I flew to the Isle of Man and I got there and it reminded me of a combination of the Channel Islands. So my grandparents used to live on Sark okay. uh, and we used to travel by Guernsey quite a lot as a kid. Yeah. And then it also reminded me of Gibraltar. Uh, and my parents have had a place in the south of Spain for many years. We used to fly through Gibraltar. Lovely. So it was this weird hybrid of two places I'd already been. Yeah. Um, a lot rainier uh, and windy. Indeed. Yeah. But it felt familiar. So yeah. I didn't have that sort of, oh, I really don't want to live here. And I went to the office, had the interview. We chatted for like three or four hours. It went really well. And so, yeah, decided to Three or four hour interview, you'd expect so. So you moved to the Isle of Man? Yeah, I spent five years there. Whoa, five years. Yeah. 
and that as investments for a single family office? Yeah, so it was going to be an investment manager role. Uh, it ended up being a little bit different, but I think probably better. So, uh, so, so Dan, who ran the family office, is a, just an amazing operator. And he got, he basically, I think he fell in love with two companies. One was Vanin Capital, this litigation funding business I worked with briefly. But the other one was Plan.com, another telecoms business. So it was a B2B telecoms business selling all types of services like you know mobile and connectivity and everything yeah. um two businesses in the in the UK and i when i joined they just built the first version of the platform and they were starting to scale it up so he said to me look um get stuck in um go run the sales team i went okay cool i'll do that and i spent the first Three months, if I'm being generous on myself, maybe six actually, screwing most things up, not really understanding the mentality of salespeople, not understanding how sales teams work. I remember sending a an email at the beginning of each month because this is the lawyer mentality, right? You ask people to do stuff and they just do it. So I sent an email saying, "Dear sales team, please deliver this amount of uh, GP. Thanks." You know, so naive. And then it didn't happen. I was like, "What on earth is going on?" It's here? so, I'm, dude. I get it. I, I mean, I'm career sales guy. I had, uh, I remember I had this P firm took over um, the company I was at, and the guy comes in, and they're like, "Guys, right? Um, we looked at the figures. We need to do twenty percent extra next year." And I was like, "Great, let's get hiring." Oh no, sorry, no, no, you misunderstood. With the same team, you need to do twenty percent. I was like, "Oh, of course, that's easy because we were all operating at eighty percent anyway." That's fine. Don't worry. None of us really were trying our best. We're just we're just up our game by twenty percent. That was kind of the mentality when you get a lawyer or an inexperienced PE guy come in and be like, "Oh, here's the stuff. We just turn numbers up because the spreadsheet makes sense." It, yeah, it, it was you know yeah exactly, and it was such a, and then stuff went wrong. And, and being completely honest, it was probably the first time stuff had really started to go wrong in my career. Yeah. And that's not wow. a feeling you get. You know, when you're a lawyer, stuff doesn't really go wrong uh, because you're supported by lots of other smart you know, smart people. It just doesn't really go wrong. And so I was like, I don't have any idea what I'm doing. And I'm now on this rock in the middle of the RSC and I've left law and this is, uh, I need to sort this out. Yeah. And I think I realized a lot then that it was, Go and ask questions. Go and understand people, which again is something I'd never done before. Lawyers don't understand each other. They don't care. Everyone just does what they're told. Just doing the law. Yeah. It's written down there for you, right? Exactly. And and so I started to speak to people. Like I'd have like, I'd take them out for lunch. I'd get to understand what was really going on in their minds. Like how are they feeling? Okay, that's never something mm. you ask as a lawyer. You don't come in in the morning and go, how are you feeling? You just, you just what's the status of the deal? Is it, is it done? Yeah. And so I, I think I learned an awful lot about myself and about the team. And I think yeah, by about month three or four, we were starting to get an understanding. And I also, they looked at me and thought, who the hell are you? You're like some lawyer who's been drafted in. You, you don't know anything yeah. about telecoms. You don't know anything about sales. And I realized that, you know, respect is earned. So I think the, probably the best thing I did was I said to him, look, you're right. I actually, I don't know much about this space and I don't know about sales. Can I come on the road with you? Because we had a field-based sales team kind of at the UK. Can I come on the road with you for two, three days, come to all your meetings with your resellers and just understand? And I think that was a massive turning point. So I went on the road with them and just learned, just absorbed it. I just understood the challenges they were having. I realized some of the tech wasn't working properly for them, so it got that fixed. And as soon as I think I started to help them and they felt they were supported, it kind of turned around. And I also realized that you don't lead or manage in one way. It's like very customized to individuals. So there was one, she was a brilliant salesperson, had a few challenges in her personal life. So she would call me in the evening, we'd have a chat. 
never, it wasn't about work. I just talked to her about whatever was going on in her life. And she performed amazingly at work because I think I cared. Mm. And so this idea of like your feelings and actually caring about people were just so not alien to me as a human, but alien to me in like the workplace. And then I realized this whole thing just merged together and actually mm. life and work are kind of all, all the same thing. I love that. It's, it's a good journey. And I, yeah, I think it's, there's so much in that, you know, you can't manage people the same way. No, you can't. Everyone has their way they need to be led. Um, some people yeah, need to be pushed. Some people just need a hug. That's the truth of it. In the current climate, marketing is hard. But do you know what isn't hard? Making sure you never miss an episode of your favourite podcast. So tap the follow button on your podcast and you'll never miss out on the latest episodes of Unicorny or Marketing Difference. You can even go back and listen to our back catalogue of amazing episodes. If you do that, please leave us a review. It would mean so much. So you finished there and then straight to Playfair because that's what you do now? So I so I ran the sales team for two years and then had another conversation where it's oh can you go and run the software development and data science team of course did for three years and why not well, you'll be like of course i can do that that's my natural thing i'm a, yeah that's fine um and, and that was and i'm not a coder i'm not technical and i got into the team and i learned quicker this time but there was still a big learning curve because a lot of things i was doing with the sales team um don't work with developers they do not um so you know trying to find out about their personal lives and getting to know them if anything that's crossing a red line with a lot of the developers you know they want to communicate via instant message they don't really like face-to-face meetings there were all these things i had to learn panic don't they? it's really interesting actually yeah they, yeah i ran a dev team and um, i do now and they it's you want to speak to them they think there's something wrong yeah yeah they're like why am i in trouble what have i done you know exactly can you just message me on slack <laughs> Yeah, and and, you know they're generally speaking you know really bright people and i kind of figured out that that, that they want challenge and they want to be supported by the business people so if i could again protect them look out for them make sure deadlines weren't ridiculous represent them well that kind of helped really build build the relationship Mm. um but the challenge thing i think was the most interesting to me i could take my cto and go right we're going to do this new thing i'd be like oh this is so amazing can't wait to get stuck in and he would always build 80% of it and then go, oh, I'm going to do something else now. I've done the difficult bit. <laughs> so Classic. figuring out Classic. how you actually deliver stuff yeah. as, a, as a tech team was kind of interesting. And then and then towards the end, uh, we outsourced a big project to a, to a uh, shop in, in Belarus. Um, so we rebuilt the whole of our internal systems, outsourced that again was another, another kind of cool experience. So, cool. so it was meant to be this investment manager role. But actually, I think if I'd gone straight from being a lawyer to investment manager, I'd have missed a trick. And actually having five years at this company was you know, a massive help because the company, and it wasn't because of me, it was because of Dan and, and the rest of the team. But the company grew from like nothing to 100 people in what, four and a bit years, nothing to 50 million in revenue. We had a number one ranking on the tech track. Lovely. And that's all the good stuff. But I just learned so many things that yeah. we did wrong and could have done better. And then if you roll forward to VC, hopefully I can help founders with... Because you've been there, you've been, you've been done the job. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I, like, I respect that. So you're, um, so now you're MP, you're managing partner at Playfair. Yes. What is, like, I mean, in a nutshell, like, um, to the outside eye, all VCs are the same. They're there to make money for their investors, right? They find good picks, they help them grow. Boom. Yeah. yeah. What's, the, what's the mantra down at your shop? So I think... I think it's probably important just to understand the history of Playfair a little bit. Yeah, so, I do. So we we were set up in 2013. Um, so you weren't there? I wasn't there, no. Right. Um, so a guy called um, uh, Federico, Fede as people kind of know him, uh, he, he set it up. But prior to that, 
he he's from kind of an ultra high net worth family. His family's been very successful in the past. He went on his own journey, which was he went to university, he graduated. He then went to work for NGOs and charities in Africa because he was money was not so much of a consideration. It was more, how am I going to have a positive impact on the world? And he worked with these charities and was really disheartened and disappointed by the lack of impact they had. And like the bureaucracy and all this kind of stuff that sometimes it's charities a common story. For. It's yeah. Brutal, yeah. So he came to London and thought, what am I going to do with my life? I'm just not sure. And so he, he got involved in what was then a very nascent angel investing community. And he started working with Eileen and Robert, who are now Passion Capital at a White Bay Yard, I think even before they started their fund. Uh, he met a guy called Simon Blakey, who's now our, he's actually on our IC now, but is a really successful angel investor. And he started to write angel checks. And he thought he was going to do like a handful, maybe half a dozen, ended up doing about 20 uh, quite quickly. And the thing behind it for him was, yes, there hopefully will be financial returns, you know, down the road. But he just loved the impact of working often with first time founders, usually with young people who've got these amazing visions. And then seeing those companies, you know, seeing those companies grow, employ people, get bigger. For him, that was like an amazing type of impact he was having. Yeah, I love that. And I think when I met first met the Playfair team, that resonated with me because I've been angel investing for 10 years. I love being part of the journey with these companies. There's an emotional aspect to it as you see them succeed or go through difficult times. I think he really felt that. So, so he was angel investing for say two years and he then thought, I want to scale this up. I want to do it bigger. I need a team. And the most important thing was I want to support my founders. I can't do it alone. So he incorporated himself as Playfair and hired a team around him. And to this day, we're still a single LP fund. So all our capital comes from, from Fede. So he ran the That's first- That's good. You can move quick. It, so, so it has like, there's a couple of impacts, I think. So one is it's amazing. We don't have to spend time out fundraising every two or three years from LPs. Yeah. But I think the more amazing thing is that that extra time, which we reckon is maybe like 30 to 40% of like a VC's life, uh, we spend that working with our founders. So that I think is probably the difference. We in, really enjoy working with our founders, but because of our structure, we're, we're liberated and able to do that. That's cool. I respect that. So I think he um, said, and, and his kind of mentality around, so we basically describe ourselves as having, or some guy recently put a, put a headline and said, it's like angel attitude with VC scale, which I absolutely love. Yeah, it's and nice. Th- it's nice. I think it's true. And I, I think, you know, so I was an angel, Fede was an angel, uh, Henrik, our associate, crowdfunded. There's that kind of connection. And I think it it plays through in a, in a few ways. Like I think the way we interact with founders is probably a bit different. So in that first meeting, we're not diving straight into the financials and pulling up a spreadsheet. We want to understand the story and the motivation. And I really tell you what, to know them. as somebody who's met a lot of VCs, if there's one thing and meet a lot of VCs on here, if there's one thing that fucks me off is when you speak to someone at idea stage, <laughs> you're like, show me some numbers. And you're like, dude, like <laughs> the, I will, we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. Then someone, it's so funny that the other day I had um, someone who um, they approached us and my company and they were like, let's, um, they, they, they're from San Fran and they came in and they sat down and they were asking me this question. They said, what's your CPA? And I was like, well, we launched in, a, in like a week, you know? And um, so I don't really know. Yeah, I don't know what it is. And they're like, well, surely you've, you've got an idea. And I said, oh yeah, well, I don't know. <laughs> and, they're, and they're like, and they got really offended. And they're yeah. like, well, you, well, surely you must know. And I was like, well, I can't know. And they're like, well, what, what, are you, what is it going to be your acquisition model? I was like, well, 
I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to experiment. Yeah, I'm not going to be like, I'm going to spend all of this money I have available on this one channel because I don't know if that's going to work. But for some people, for some VCs, like if you don't have those numbers and they don't, you don't fit in that box, they're like, bro, I'm not into this. And it's exhausting, you know, and I love the attitude to be like, well, let's let's find out about the founder. You know, there's, Techstars have the best mantra I've heard on this, which is where you say, what are your the top six things they look for when they're investing? People, 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 market traction, idea. <laughs> yeah. Which, I, yeah, I can't disagree with that. I think that's, I think that's spot on. And, I love it. Uh, but, you know, the biggest thing, right, is that is that people don't generally change, whereas your metrics will. Yeah. So if someone comes in and is like, oh, that. it's amazing, like our, our CAC LTV is like 12 to 1 or whatever the number Whoa, is that they bring out. 12 to like, 1. Amazing. <laughs> of course it is. But that will change, right? Your That channel will saturate and other things will happen. So what we care about, and of course it's a seed stage thing, right? But we just care about understanding the people, understanding their motivations. Because I think, and I've seen this with my angel investments as well as I've seen it in Playfair, you know, what determines success and failure is is the character of the founders and what motivates them. And there's loads of old kind of tried and tested stuff. There's a missionaries versus mercenaries. I don't want to like talk about all that stuff because loads of other people have talked about it. But in my experience, it's just their character. What motivates them? And I think, you know, we see lots of people coming in going, oh, I've got this idea. We're going to build this SaaS business. Oh, did you experience the pain point personally? Like what's got you so excited about it? Oh, no, we were just doing some research and we thought maybe it's an interesting market space. That generally doesn't interest me. I love people who come in and go, um, it's been burning with me for like five years. There's this massive problem and I don't know. It'll take health tech because we've done a couple of health tech deals recently. It's just this real lack of patient data. And if we could get more of it, mm. we could actually do better clinical trials, better drugs, and people would live yeah. longer. Like, okay, I get behind that. Yeah, I love it's that. something you're passionate about. And, and that's just key for us. I think also, like, if you meet, like, yeah, just going off that, like, when you meet some founders, you're like, oh, just take my money <laughs> because, like, I believe in you. Like, I know you're going to make success of this. There's um, a guy who's on the show. Um, they told me off to talk about it. the guy who's on the show, James Hawkins. He used to be, so like he was a pro cyclist. Okay, went into tech world for a little bit, did all right, pretty good. Then he started a company, and um, I was with him when he started and helped him out a little bit. And uh, he got into YC. Okay, he's pivoted twice in four months, and I'm like, dude, I don't care. Like, I know you're going to be a winner because you're like, it doesn't work. Fine, I'm going to pivot. I'm going to pivot. I'm going to pivot. And you meet those founders and you're like, I know you're going to be a success. I want to be part of it. You know, they, it's like, they could be, it's like Elon. Elon could do anything he wants. Yep. And you know, he's going to win. Yeah. And I love that attitude. So a couple of functional questions for you because you're in the space and you do this a lot, right? So you mentioned it earlier about, you know, standing out when you do job applications. So play fair, like you're a VC. If you're getting a thousand associate applications, God knows how many pitches you get. How, how do you, you said there's three of you? Uh, there are six of us. Six of us. Four full time. Yeah. Four full time, six of you. Okay. So how do you, what's your advice to people? Like, how do you separate the wheat from the chaff? Like if you're, because going out speculative to VCs, hard game to stand out. Yeah, getting referrals. People say, get a referral. Yeah, okay, fine. What if I don't know them? You'll know somebody knows them. But how do you stand out in that? And what, or rather for you, what gets you excited? So uh, I hate the referral thing, by the way. The yeah. I I think it 
it sort of entrenches existing networks that people have. So there's a, there's a massive diversity problem in VC. It's lots of white guys, unfortunately, like me, who uh, are at most of the funds. I think it's even worse in the US because they've all gone to like certain certain grad schools. Oh, it's not, man. Literally, you go over, you go into, literally, you go in there. And I was in San Fran like eight weeks ago, and it's just like everyone went to the same uni. Everyone followed the same path. Everyone is like in that clique, yeah. and you know I've wiggled my way in. But like, if I had just been at Stanford or whatever, I'd be like, it must be easy. Yeah. You know, it's it's such a strange world. So, so I think that that creates problems, right? And so we, we want to find the best businesses wherever they come from. Right? We, don't, we don't care where they come from. So when we launched the second fund, we thought about this long and hard. Are we going to have like an open pitch form on our website? And a lot of people advised us against it and said, you'll drown, you'll just get it. Like you'll get a load of rubbish through basically. And we decided to to have one. And we do get a lot of things through that aren't great. Um, but we've also seen some really good businesses through that. Have you well. invested in some through that? We haven't invested in something through the website, but we have invested in something that was a cold approach to me on LinkedIn. Boom. And we're about to, in fact, we're going to close that on Tuesday. What was the subject line? Uh, I will have, oh, is construction tech of interest to play for? And I thought, yes, it is. <laughs> What a great, what a great subject line. Yeah. That's cool. I like that. He nailed it. And it was, it wasn't too long. It just gave enough content. He broke it up, like easy to read, attached the deck. And he was like, if you'd like to have a chat about it, you know, here's my mobile, here's my email address. I'd love to hear from you. Because actually one thing I think founders do is they try and they want to be assertive. And sometimes it goes a bit far and they'll say, are you free for a call this week? He'd be like, no, I'm not. And so that almost knocks it out because you go, well, I can't do it this week. So it just gets knocked out of your queue. If it's a bit more open-minded, I'd just love to talk to you at some point. Mm. That's a really nice way of finishing it off. So um, yeah, we're going to write a blog about this deal, hopefully in the next month or so. And I'm actually going to put his original LinkedIn post in the blog. I'd love to see that. Because I think there's just a ton of lessons from it. So that's cool. I, yeah, I, I, cold approaches is fine. I think. Do you always respond? That gets because you know the guys because it's one of those things. So um, ADV, I think, have the best approach. You know, ADV, David Fogel. Yeah, yeah. Dave's like, um, if you submit to us because you have taken and in his very aggressive Israeli way, but like if you have if you have some taken the time yeah. to write a pitch deck and submit to us, the least I can do is take the time to respond. Yeah, we respond to everything. Now we may not be that timely sometimes because yeah. of volume. Of course, we respond to everything. Yeah, and the, the reason for that is, I mean, I think the way you described it is great. But everyone who's starting a company, it's their dream, and you've got to have some respect for that. Yeah. So if someone's putting it all out there, and you can't even be bothered to respond. You've got, that's you've got not good. It. So, so we reply. We try. So basically, if we've met someone, we'll always try and give some constructive feedback, whether it's a referral or this is what we were unsure about. This is what you need to work on. If it's something where we've seen a deck and we're just not going to engage at all, then we'll generally say it's not for us. And then we'll give them a link to a blog post we wrote. So there's basically a blog post you wrote, like, why wouldn't you get a meeting with us? Yeah. And it's just like like 10 points to kind of just think about maybe you haven't got something quite right. Yeah, I like that. I respect that. The um, So, and the conversely, like, what turns you off? Um, badly designed decks. So I love that. Finally, someone who admits that ugly decks don't get investment. It's all about, I don't, so I don't get this, right? If you want to go for a job, you have a CV, right? And you make it perfect. Yeah. If you're going to raise money, your deck is what sells you. Yeah. Make it perfect. And so when I see 
typos, when I see clip art, when I see oh my just, God. it's just painful. Yeah. And you've got to imagine, let's say I'm going to run through, I don't know, 20 decks in a day or whatever it is. Content's going to help you stand out, but actually make the cover page beautiful. Dude. And then I'm going to start reading it. And then there's a second point linked to that, which is how much information you give us. Um, and I, I've made this analogy, I think, a couple of times before, but I still think it holds true. Speaking to a VC is like dating. So what you don't want to do is just like blurt it all out on the first date or your first contact. Let me make someone. some notes about this just for dating as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, don't blurt it all out, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just... It's just crazy. So, you know, if you get like a 40 page deck as the first thing they send you full of text, it's incredibly unlikely that we're actually going to get through that and, yeah. and engage with it. And then you roll forward to the first pitch meeting. Again, if you just take a massive breath and just go woof at us for 45 minutes and we don't get into a dialogue, um, you've kind of wasted your opportunity. Mm. And if you don't get into a dialogue with someone, it means their brain switches off. I love that. I love that. It's such a great. I say to people all the time, like, like go, go on to Fiverr. Okay, you can get a designer for like, it would cost you like 20 quid genuinely to get your deck to look sexy. Yep. It's not a lot of money because and your results will be exponentially better. True story. Right. Okay. Part of the show now where I ask you some questions from the Twitter sphere or the email. Uh, if you want to email in, it is pod at stakes.com pod at stakes.com or I am back yourself pod at Twitter. Okay, right. So question one. Um, oh, actually, I, I circled this one because I like it. When is the right time to take money? It depends. <laughs> of course it does. Of course it does. <laughs> but like there's no. this thing, there's this thing that goes on in the world at the moment where people like, and I believe this, and there's probably a lot of stats for this. I think a lot of companies collapse themselves by taking too much money too soon. And what they do is they're like, I've taken on X amount of money. It doesn't The scale doesn't matter. But what they've done is they take on that money. And with that is an obligation to scale quickly. And because of that, they can't scale quickly. They can't hire people fast enough or whatever. And it means they run out of cash and they burn and die. Yeah, I completely agree. Someone described it to me recently as the debt of expectation you create as well around it. An investment. Good line. If you take too we'll much money. We'll quote that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and interesting, actually, the deal we're about to close, the one that was a cold approach, we actually encouraged them to take less money in this round because they were thinking to themselves, this is an industry, it's construction tech. So they're thinking long sales cycles. I want to protect myself. I want to have like 24 months runway and I want to do X, Y, and Z. So I'm going to raise more money. 24 months runway. Right. And that's a, that's a trend. You're starting to see that. You're starting to see people come to us saying, well, actually, I want to raise more money because uh, it's B2B and the sales cycles are long. Um, but we encourage them to take less. And I agree. I think there's another point around uh, culture. So if you have tons of money or too much money, you get lazy and you start hiring too many people too soon and it all just sort of spirals out of control. If you run lean, you just find really effective ways of doing things. So I'm absolutely an advocate of taking, definitely taking less money. Okay. And also you give away less of your business. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, you remain a founder and not an employee. Yeah. And, and equally go back to things that, you know, what, what sort of impresses us and what we like. I love it when people have done the seemingly impossible with basically bugger all money. Like if you bootstrap your way to this MVP and we ask the question of how have you funded this? Oh, well out of my own pocket and you know, my mate Dave helped do this and then someone helped do that. That's brilliant because that shows you've got that kind of hustling. That I'm going to put this out there. I'm going to ask you. I'm going to ask you this question because I'm fascinated by this because I get a different one from everyone. So yeah. I'm going to see what it is. What is a reasonable amount of money to spend to get to MVP? 
I'm going to say it depends again. Um, it's so for us. Because someone, someone yeah. comes to you, right? Someone comes yeah. to you and they're like, because like, there's this thing, there's a lot of funds that are like, I want to be the first money in. And you're like, no yeah. one's the first money in. That's my yeah. money, right? But that's like, so you get to MVP. Someone comes to you and they're doing, say they're doing a B2C app or yeah. they're doing a B2B SaaS or whatever, okay? Slightly different. B2B SaaS is a bit harder, but- yeah. Anyway, you've built an MVP. Yeah. And also if you listen to people like uh, this company we had on the show called Switched, who do price, um, they save people money on their bills. Yeah. Their MVP was actually a, um, a they they were unbelievably low risk. They had um, a mail sign up on their website and they did it all in the background on their own manually. Yeah, that was their MVP. But like my point is, if someone comes to you and they said, I've spent 3 million, yeah. or someone said, spent, you know, like, I don't think you can do it for, 50 grand but like do you know what i mean like yeah what's a number that it become makes you think these guys aren't doing this properly yeah i, I think if you're talking hundred as soon as you get to hundreds of thousands then i'm i'm concerned uh so if you're if you're you have if you're in the hundreds of thousands that's yeah. when it's a problem for an mvp and, and you know the, the point you made about you know we saw someone the other day and they had this they, they throw basically thrown up a website and everything behind the scenes was being done on an Excel spreadsheet and they were doing it manually. So like take a marketplace business. We get people who want to spend a fortune on building this incredible website before they've got either side of the marketplace sorted and they know where they're going to get their buyers and whatever from the suppliers from. Um, the best people just do it on a spreadsheet. They start doing it on email. They're basically acting as a broker and yeah. they're proving the market exists. So they're proving they can shift, I don't know, sandals or whatever between this, these, these um, suppliers and these, these buyers. So, yeah, spend as little as possible and try and prove that there is demand for your business. Yeah, nice. That's quite, I'll take that. Um, okay, next. Oh, I've kind of answered that. Right. B2B business, B2C business. What's your first hire? Um, so B2B, I would go hard on the tech. So I think the founders should take the responsibility for doing the sales. And I think it was a guy called Richard Mabby at Juro, who just raised from USV. He was very opinionated and said, I think the first half a million to a million of ARR should come from the founders. And I think that's absolutely right. So I think the founding team, someone's got to carry the sales. So I would hire on the tech side. I'd make sure that you've got I... a solid platform. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I 100% agree. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And then B2C, I have not much of an idea what I'm talking about. We do predominantly uh, predominantly B2B. To, B to B. Um, but B2C feels a little bit more like actually your engagement with your community, your marketing, uh, and actually getting the word out is more important. So head of growth, marketing, community feels like more the type of person you should be bringing in to kind of scale the founder's activities in that area. Interesting. Usually, I would say brand first on that, but I'm mm -hmm. on the same sort of page. Okay, right, last one. It's good, it's good. It was a, <laughs> if you were to quit VC now, right, and go and be, be a founder, okay? It's terribly intimidating for a VC because you're like, damn, I've been telling everyone how to do this. I've got to go and do it right now. <laughs> yeah, but you're like, I always say the most intimidating situation you can ever be in is as a coach. Because like I always say to people, so I, uh, I coach a bit of fighting and it's like, if I get in the ring, I've got to, I've got to show the jam now. I've got to yeah. be good, right? Yeah, Same yeah. with the VC because you're, you're telling everyone what they should be doing and now yeah. you're going to, but I believe in you. If you, um, if you would quit VC tomorrow, yeah. okay, and start your own business, what would you do? Uh, I would build something in the autonomous transportation space and competitive specifically well but no but no one's standing out i like this so so the thing with the autonomous transportation space is you say autonomous cars and trucks no way 
there's like thousands of people trying to do it. Everyone's trying to get to level five autonomy. That's crazy. Yeah. I think where it's pretty interesting is off public roads. So things like ports and factories and figuring out how to deploy autonomy combined with human interactions, the kind of human in the loop stuff. I think that is a super interesting space. So if you think about like a port and you've got loads of drivers employed to drive stuff around, it's really inefficient. They sit around all day, occasionally drive stuff around the port. If you can make those autonomous, like fairly simple level of autonomy to those vehicles and then have a remote teleoperated driver um, doing like a one to five or a one to 10 ratio with those those vehicles, that's a really interesting business. It's actually really interesting because you look at people like um, doing a very light level like Ocado. Yeah. Ocado brought autonomy into the package. Damn. Yeah. They're smashing it. Yeah. They're actually there. They're behind us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they, um, they're smashing it. I love that. Really good. All right, fine. Well, look, this was great. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for coming on and um, good luck. Awesome. Thanks so much.